Hi, this is Louis Canio. Welcome to the Doctor and Dad podcast. This fast-paced weekly podcast delves into the latest scientific findings on how we can all live longer and better lives. I'm the dad, and my daughter, Nicole, is a family medicine doc who trained at the renowned Cleveland Clinic. We hope you enjoy this short, informative show, and please be sure to visit thedoctorandad.com. Uh, and by the way, the doctor is abbreviated in that. So it's T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for the show notes um, and other resources to help you learn about extending your health span. Within the notes, you'll find links to a bunch of stuff we discussed. So be sure to check it out. And thanks for listening. Hi, doctor. Hi, dad. So today we're going to talk about science because really the point of this podcast is to discover what science can teach us about extending our health span. Um, so if listeners haven't listened to our first podcast, uh, health span is about living better for longer. So for more on that concept, obviously listen to the fir- first podcast and certainly check out the show notes on thriveafter55.com. So we've titled this episode, Good Science, Bad Science. So question for you, Nicole, is, is there such a thing as bad science? Um, yes. Um, so there's definitely um, bad science. And I think that there's some bad science that is um, just done kind of with neglect. And then there's bad science that's not set out to have been done bad. It just by by nature of the way that the studies are designed, they're just not good. Um, probably the most dramatic example of bad science that I can think of in the last 20 years would be the, let's see, 1998 paper in um, The Lancet, and it was Dr. Andrew Wakefield um, claiming that their research had found a link between vaccines and autism. And that was huge. And that's been cited and recited hundreds of times. Um, And then finally, this data was found to be the data he used was found to be false and the findings were found to be completely incorrect. So, but with that time, um, and it was withdrawn, I think in 2010, maybe fast forward to 2018, and we still um, have to convince, try to convince a huge proportion of patients that vaccines are still good um, and and beneficial and outweigh far outweigh the risks um, and do not cause autism and um, I have to find I find myself kind of reminding people of um, what the days of polio were like because people don't want to vaccinate anymore based on this study and now actually there's I think what 50 people in Washington and Oregon who now have measles because we have a measles outbreak in 2019 Um, so that is a example of some very bad very bad and and I'm just curious was that purposefully bad science or that one was more purposely bad science yes Um, the data was found to be inaccurate and poorly um conducted and maybe falsified and yeah so i think that there was some um um, negligence no negligence on on that part um but then it was cited and cited and used as to kind of propagate this same research by many other people you know so that was maybe not um done on purpose it was just 
you know, they use this research to base their future findings on. And um, the other part of bad science is, you know, if you go on like your computer, your MSN homepage or whatever, and you see all these new claims like blank um, found to fight cancer and blank found to be the cure for diabetes and all this stuff from these studies that are really not fantastically done, but make headlines because they can um, kind of boast some really um, potentially great sounding results. Um, And that's the case with virtually all nutrition studies. Um, They're just nutrition studies are hard to do and not done well, but then we, we see these um, headlines and people follow these trends and they drink their apple cider vinegar thinking it's going to cure their cancer. And, you know, so it's, there's just a ton of um, misinformation. Well, I think, and I think you hit on the, the reason we're doing this podcast is, is to help people kind of filter through that a little bit. And, yep. and, and really the, 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 the reason we're going to do a deep, a little bit of a deep dive, um, you know, we can, we can, we can spend a lot of time um, kind of digging into this science thing. Uh, we'll, we'll try to make it as, as quick and um, kind of uh, elucidating <laughs> as, as, as possible for folks. But so let me ask you this. I'm curious, are you considered a scientist? You're a doctor, obviously an MD. Are MDs scientists? Um, I would not call myself a scientist. No, I would not call all MDs scientists and not all scientists are MDs. Um, I think a scientist is someone who kind of systematically will gather um, information and and make a hypothesis that can then be tested, you know, by yep. the kind of classic definition of a scientist. You're, you're doing some type of study, gathering data and, and analyzing results. Um, and I'm not doing that. No. Gotcha. So, so we make the differentiation. There's some docs who are just clinical like you. Right. And not just, I don't mean just. Uh, yes, no, I'm not in, <laughs> well. I don't do the research. Yep. Uh, and there are some that do research, but there are some that, that do both. Yes. Right. So, Lots gotcha. of them do both. Yep. Okay. So I want to go right back to the, to the very beginning and, and say, you know, uh, because science has kind of become a little bit controversial, you know, particularly around things like, climate science which has mm-hmm. been politicized and and your your point around you know that autism study get i don't know if it's politicized is the right word but certainly oh, yeah. I think yeah, so. the right word okay yep. so the it's interesting so really the the earliest roots go back to ancient egypt and mesopotamia um, but really in uh let's say two thousand years ago formed a foundation for um greek uh, in, inquiry into how the world works um, and then interesting and, and so we, we've heard all of this stuff and I'm no scholar on on um, Greece and ancient Rome and all that but we've heard these stories about how sophisticated the Greeks were I mean you know uh, certainly from a philosophical standpoint Aristotle and, and Plato but also from a uh, from a, a scientific study and who is help me who is the the Greek medical philosopher the oath um. I believe there are well, but, but the oath that like do no harm first do no harm. Who's that oh, guy? Oh, Hippocrates, like the Hippocratic oath you're talking yes, about. Yes, there you go. That's yes. that's the one I was looking for. Yes. So, um, so that's 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 kind of part and, and partial. But really, then it's interesting that the that kind of um, 
knowledge and um, inquiry method was lost for for hundreds and hundreds of, of years. And, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's why they call it the dark ages. And then um, the scientific revolution really then begins, the modern one begins in, let's say, 16th century when the Renaissance was happening. And, and that was the, the period of da Vinci and Galileo and Copernicus, uh, all of these kind of, you know, foundational um, uh, scientists. Um, and it was, it was interesting because the, the church was very hostile to these folks who are um, essentially presenting a new way of learning about the world and reality. Mm-hmm. And really what these guys did differently was explain the, how the world worked by observing what happened in the world, not referencing holy texts. And, and the church didn't really like that. Um, so, and then, you know, obviously scientific research, scientific method evolved from this process of explanation through observation. So right. help me with, with this, this, because again, we've, we've heard this term scientific method. What, what is in, in your words that are the, the scientific method? Um, well, so at kind of at its most basic level, it's essentially, you know, you come up with a, um, a kind of a question that you want to answer. And then usually you have an, um, a hypothesis or an educated guess around what a potential cause could be. And that's usually through your own background research. Um, and this question is something that's kind of testable. So you can do either, you know, an experiment or an ob- observation kind of study um, and collect your data to then see if there's, you know, a, a causal relationship between what you think might have caused something. Um, and you're, you're essentially just testing your hypothesis and kind of coming up with an answer, whether your, your answer was that it did or that it didn't kind of, we still consider that good information. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and I've read, um, I can't remember where, but I've read that one of the kind of um, key attributes of a good scientist is he is, or she is willing to, you know, even if they get the positive result they want, really question that result and, 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 you know, try right. to find out if it's, if it, if it is actually falsifiable right. in some way. Yep. Because even if you find out that something doesn't, isn't linked or caused by something else, that's still good information to have. Yep, absolutely. So let's, let's dig into the types of medical scientific studies, because there are obviously all kinds of scientific studies, physics and astronomy and all that sort of thing. So a couple of, couple of different ones. One is uh, you've had some familiarity with is, is just a laboratory study where you're looking at, at cells under a microscope or um, in a Petri dish or what have you. So um, uh, talk a little bit about your experience uh, when you were in um, undergrad. Um, Yeah. So lab studies are kind of what you think about when you think about a classic kind of quote unquote scientist. Um, The research I did was with bacteria called Vibrio vulnificus and my particular um, research was looking at um, heat shock proteins and how they the heat shock proteins of this bacteria could potentially affect the virulence factors and why 
um, this particular bacteria can be so um, potentially deadly um, in certain situations. And that sounds neat, um, you know, when you just think about that, but the actual um, research that takes place is, is kind of like isolating particular genes in the genome of the bacteria and amplifying them using other enzymes and um, kind of conducting your studies that way. And um, it's definitely some people's cup of tea, but plenty of other people would call it boring. Boring. (laughs) And boring, tedious, and a heck of a lot of work for sometimes, you know, it took probably a full good year and a half um, to get any data that was even worth um, kind of concluding anything on. And yeah, it's very tedious work. Was anything published that um, that came out of your stuff? I had a paper that was my thesis and it was part of a published paper. Um, Not my, it wasn't its own published paper, but it became part of a published paper. Now, if I, if I remember correctly, this, this potentially deadly bacteria tended to live in oysters? Yes, this particular one um, was, was, so it lives in the ocean, um, and oysters were the way it often infected humans, so that's what made it kind of relevant. It's fine if it just hangs out in the ocean, um, but if you are eating raw oysters, then you have this bacteria, and if you are immunocompromised, um, or if you get a cut on your skin and you're immunocompromised and this gets in, um, it can be, um, pretty quickly fatal. So it was definitely a, a significant, um, kind of bacteria to be researching and there's a ton of interesting information on it. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a good lesson into how difficult and tedious real wet lab research, um, actually is. Well, I, I, I love oysters, raw oysters, so I, and I haven't stopped eating them. But every time I do, I, I, I think back to, you know, the fact that I'm, I'm living on, I could be living yes, on the edge. Yes, uh, you're rolling the dice. <laughs> so, okay, so let's go to more, not more relevant, but, but the type of studies that we often hear about in the, uh, in the press, which is epidemiological studies. Mm-hmm. So these, these are observational studies, not done in a lab. So they're, they're done. Uh, you know, in the, in the, in the world, real world. Um, and um, they're, they're used to examine risk factors that are associated with increase or decrease risk that uh, someone will, will develop a, a disease. So mm-hmm. um, give me an example of, of an epidemiological study that people would, would, could relate to. Um, oh gosh. The, so there's a ton, um, but a kind of easy one is the association between smoking and lung cancer. Um, There are at least four different types of epidemiological studies themselves. Like, you know, there's cohort studies, case control studies, cross-sectional studies, um, and they're all different ways of um, observing if blank exposure caused or is related to blank disease, essentially. So like a cohort study would follow healthy um, people and then watch their different levels of exposure to blank, like smoking. And then with that find, is there a link between that exposure and an outcome like lung cancer? Um, 
So in that instance, you can kind of prove causation to some degree, and there's less bias doing it that way. Um, But then there's also case control studies where you investigate a prior exposure. So you look back and say, okay, this person has lung cancer. Did they smoke? Mm-hmm. Um, or, and, you know, or did this person smoke and now do they have lung cancer? And it's a, it's a cheaper, quicker way to go about trying to find an association, but you really can't prove causation there. And you definitely have a bit more bias. So there's all kinds of different ways to go about these observation studies and some are, some are better than others. Yeah. Yep. And we'll talk about kind of the gold standard in, in that as we kind of move, move along here. Uh, and then the last the last one that I would mention, and, and people obviously have heard of this, is human clinical studies where, you know, in, in the, the most uh, common example is where uh, for drug approvals. Yep. And, yep. and so in that. Oh, go ahead. That's where, you know, you're actually and, and usually these start with animal trials, you know, to prove something in an animal trial first before you do any actual human trials, because um, this is where you are testing, you know, the safety of a new drug or device or or something. And um, you want to actually have your environment very well controlled. So there's not other factors that are contributing. And this is how we go through the approval for certain new medications and um, you get the best data, um, but it's takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money. Yeah. And I've heard, um, I I read that only 10% of all drugs that are started in human clinical trials become improved drug. Yeah. And that actually is a higher um, percentage than I would have guessed. I would have yep. guessed less, even less than that. So, and that, and that does get into, and obviously too, too big an issue for, for this podcast, but yeah. it does get in, into this issue of, of the cost of medications and mm-hmm. what is a, you know, almost an, you know, ethical price for some of these medications that are coming mm-hmm. out that have unbelievable efficacy on things that, you couldn't treat before, you know, cancer or t- certain types of cancers based upon, you know, genetic profiles and, uh, right. and this immunotherapy and whatever. But yep, that's out of probably out of my scope. Um, it's definitely a, a big, a big problem and a big issue. Um, and there's certainly a lot of um, negative things to be said about the pharmaceutical companies and price gouging and these medications being completely unaffordable to people. Um, and on the flip side of that, I think some of that what is what funds the next study to find the next yeah. medication. So it's it's that there's no easy answer there either. Yeah. Complicated issue. Mm-hmm. So there's there's one other type of study that that um, I think we should mention, um, and that is a meta study. So and and for because I'm I'm hearing that more and more often. Uh, it seems like five years ago, I'd never heard that sort of thing. And now I hear it more and more often. So a meta study is a study of studies. It's not a study, a new study in and of itself, right? Um, So I think you're talking about like a meta analysis. Yes. Okay. Um, So that would be kind of like an analysis of a bunch of pooled data from other scientific studies. Um, So, you know, when you have one randomized control trial that says blank causes blank, but then fast forward 10 years and we've done all kinds more research. When you go back and pull that date, all of that data together, you can do what, you know, would be called a meta-analysis of everything and use statistics and, and then find, did, 
is that actually true anymore? Right. Data shows. Well, and they, 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 and they often or sometimes do come up with completely new findings after, exactly. after yep. looking at all these different studies. Something so. very interesting, and this kind of goes back to the nutritional studies just being so flawed most of the time, is very, very recent you know, meta-analysis of the Mediterranean diet um, came out to show that it actually doesn't do anything to change your risk of heart disease and, you know, everything else that it was told to, to do. And, and before that Mediterranean diet was um, shown to, to be the, the one diet that really kept coming back as the right dietary guideline to follow. And now after we look back at all of the data, does it really do anything to help more than anything else? Doesn't sound like it. Doesn't so. look like it. So, yeah. so what people? Well, that's a that, again. That's we as we go through these, we, we're like, oh, that's a good, uh, that's a good subject for a future podcast. Exactly. We yeah. definitely will. Nutrition, uh, diets, mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. But, but um, moving along in this in this um, exploration of science, let's let's talk about some concepts to help us understand really the significance of a of a news report when you hear about this or that new mm-hmm. new discovery. So there's this interesting. Um, kind of idea or, or difference between relative and absolute risk, because what you hear is, is, oh, you know, so-and-so um, increases your risk of cancer, let's say by mm-hmm. 33% or, yeah. or whatever. And, um, and, and so we've got to, we, we've got to understand that in all, in virtually every I would say almost probably every news uh, flash mm-hmm. about this or that discovery, they're talking about relative risk versus absolute risk. Right. Because right. it makes it sound better Absolutely. when you report it with, with that. So let's give an example. Actually, I have an example from today. I, I get this. I was on the elliptical and scrolling across the, the TV screen, it was on CNN, uh, scrolling across the TV screen, there was um, this news report that uh, the active ingredient in Roundup, you know, the weed killer Roundup, yes. was, um, was found through this meta-study or this meta-analysis was found to increase your chances of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma by 41%. Sounds huge. Sounds huge. Now, so I went, no, you know, knowing what I know, I went back um, after and I, and I Googled what your chances of not catching non or, or developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is. And it's a little bit different than men and women, but it's essentially across your lifetime, 2%. Mm-hmm. So can you do the math? I'm going to put you on the spot. What's no. uh what's a 40? <laughs> I, I'll, I'll do the math because I already figured it out. So, forty-one percent, <laughs> a forty-one percent increase in uh, your chances of, of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma due to, to I, I think it's a pretty uh, big exposure because they were specifically talking about these pesticide folks who sprayed Roundup pretty much for work every day. Yeah. So, anyway, so it, uh, you know you get a high uh, exposure to Roundup and it goes up forty-one percent. You're you're actual risk would go from 2% to 2.8%. Exactly. Say. Yep. On an absolute basis, right. on a relative basis, 41%. Yeah. So, I mean, that sounds like two, com- you're saying two completely different things. At first, it sounds like you're saying, oh, wow, that really could increase my risk a whole lot. 
And then when you flip it around, it's like, oh, that really actually doesn't increase my risk that much. But that it, you know, the, all the time. At the same time, I'm still not going to, I'm going to think twice before oh, using Roundup. Well, right. <laughs> yes, fine. But I think, I think people know that you, that you shouldn't be around Roundup anyways. Anyway, <laughs> yep, exactly. So, so this gets us into now this idea around correlation, causation, and, and math. Um, so let's let's dive into that and at the risk of, of you know going beyond where either of us kind of uh, you know has has deep 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 authority but uh, number one is the difference between correlation and causation so oftentimes we'll get these studies that um, that correlate certain phenomenon like the use of roundup and higher rates of non-hodgkin's lymphoma but can we automatically infer that high use of Roundup causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Right. You can't in most cases, like a, you know, cross-sectional study where you compare groups and their exposure and disease. So this person was never exposed to Roundup and this person was exposed. And then you look at their disease. um, You cannot infer causation. And, and, and it, I, I don't think so. Um, oftentimes these news stories don't come out and say this causes this, but mm-hmm. they, impl- they, but they imply it. Right. That's what they are trying to say. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and because I, I think that the challenge here is, as you dig into this is it's pretty complex stuff. Mm-hmm. There's some very complex statistics that all goes into any of these studies I mean, you almost have to be a statistician to, to kind of be a research well, scientist. Well, you do, or you have to have one on your, on on your team. payroll. Yep. 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 Um, you know, I, I, I started to do some research on this and my head started spinning and, right. and yeah. I, you know, I took statistics in college, but, um, but there's this thing called P value, which is, which is interesting. And, and it's, 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 it's kind of uh, used to be a measure of, statistically significant correlation that implies causation. Do mm-hmm. I have that kind of right? Yep. Um, but, but as you dig into that and, and, and kind of the, from, you know, this, this doesn't apply just to medicine, it implies to, to all right. kinds all of studies, different statistics. All research, and yep, yep. Um, and, and so the, 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 the guideline for, you know, statistically significant correlation is generally set about 5%, which I think in layman's terms means there's a 95% chance of the phenomena that you just witnessed being because of the variable that you're studying. Right. Or related to the variable that you're studying. But there's a 5% chance that it's not. That there's, that. there's 5% chance that it just happened by chance. Random. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And what's interesting is there's all this debate, not just in medicine, but, but also in medicine around, okay, is a p-value of, of five, is that actually, um, or p-value of 0.05, 0.05 I think. right. Yep. Oh, thank you. Um, is that actually a, a good enough threshold or should it be 0.005? Right. So there's in, it, implying 99.5% mm-hmm. chance that the, that, that uh, observation is related to the variable you're studying, which right. is, that's huge. That's a hundred, that's a hundred times difference. Exactly. Which would, other. Yeah, that would make things a lot more difficult to have what people would consider statistically significant evidence, because that's really what ends up mattering is it are your results statistically significant? If not, then they're kind of 
almost ignored, so to speak. So to make it that much more stringent to be statistically significant would definitely change how much um, data is coming out of all kinds of studies in, in any field. Exactly, exactly. And the, the fear is that it brings up more false negatives. In other words, there actually is a correlation and, yeah. and maybe causation between these and but but because you've set the bar so high, you're not you're not finding it. Right. So so it just it brings up the, the point that there's almost an art to the within the science around right. yep. some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So so the, well, let's talk about we, we talked about kind of the, the types of studies um, uh, earlier. What the, the gold standard uh, in um, any type of st- scientific study, particularly medical scientific studies, is, is what's called double-blind, randomized, controlled studies. So yep. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll shorten that to DBRC. Um, it's, it's the most stringent way of conducting an, an experiment. So again, put you on the spot. What's, what's a double-blind, randomized, controlled? What, what's unique about that? Um, so it's essentially that the subjects, which would be assuming we're doing human studies, um, so the participants are the humans, and the conductors, the scientists who are doing it, are blind to um, which group each participant is in. So if you were doing a study wondering if you know this medication helped your blood pressure, for example, and one group got the medication and the other group got a water pill. Um, the, the participants don't know which pill they got and the people conducting and gathering the research and everything don't know which ones they got. So you take out bias um, from, from both the conductors and the the subjects because you know the subjects would be the ones reporting side effects and this and that and if they knew that they had the medication versus the water pill maybe they'd be more apt to um to report a side effect or think that something could have been related to their medication um and randomized is just um kind of making sure that your um your experiment subjects are otherwise as equal as possible to limit kind of the other potential confounding factors that could change your results. Exactly. Exactly. And so why isn't every study a a double blind randomized control study? Um, Because of time um, and money Um, for the most part. Yeah. They, they take a lot of time and they, they cost a lot of money. You got to do it in a very, you know, controlled setting and, um, they're, they're just not easy, not easy to do. And, and, and this is another, uh, so it's rare that a a news report on a, on a new study finding, what have you would, would go, would, would either say it was, or was not a double blind randomized control study. It is, you know, there's just, there just isn't that, that level of, uh, of detail. Um, and, and, and in fact, it's the double blind uh, randomized control studies are relatively rare for exactly the, uh, the reasons you pointed out, there was mm-hmm. this study done a um, little while back, 2013, where uh, they, they kind of uh, scoured uh, New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, Journal of American Medical Association, and, and others. Um, so really, the, the, the top medical journals for articles on um, observational studies. Um, mm-hmm. And then what they found was over 50% of the studies in these you know, major uh, authoritative journals 
in 50, over 50%, the authors recommended a medical practice based upon the results. You know, you should eat mm-hmm. this or take this drug or, or do this. Um, but of those studies where they rec- made a medical recommendation, only 14% of them were randomized controlled right. studies. Yep. Double blind randoms. That's, yep. that's, that's, that's crazy. Um, and so again, it, it, it points out the, uh, the, the, the challenges. Yeah. And it's not even just challenges in, um, I mean, we hear about all these, we talked about the other observational studies being kind of more likely to be flawed. Um, but I think that the numbers are something around like 80% of non-randomized studies, which are the most common studies done, um, turn out to be incorrect. But even 25% of gold standard randomized controlled trials, the data turns out to be incorrect um, in the long run. And even, I think I was reading something in the last like 15 years, there was a researcher who looked at the most acclaimed research in medicine, you know, that related to aspirin and heart disease and hormone replacement therapy for postmenopausal women and vitamin E preventing, you know, all sorts of different things. And even, you know, these things that are, are so commonplace in practice, 25 to 33% of the most acclaimed research done in the last decade or two was proved to be quote unquote, untrustworthy. Man, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. So it, it, you know, what is a person to do? And I guess uh, the, the short answer is, is listen to our future podcast (laughs) as as we work our way through this. I am not an expert on which studies you should listen to. It's, it's tough for, it's tough for me. It's tough for, I imagine for everybody to figure out what to listen to. Absolutely. And, and obviously lots of biases, conflicts of interest, what have you. Um, you know, we've, we've kind of gone longer as we usually do with, with this. So we won't get into all the different types. It's kind of a, a, a just, just for folks to know, there's, there's you know, this selection bias, there's information bias, there's confounding, which is interesting, um, confirmation bias. There's all kinds of biases that can enter a um, enter a study, including conflicts of interest, which has been um, somewhat of a, uh, in the news lately, there was this, uh, there was this uh, National Institutes of Health study on alcohol, the effect of alcohol, that was recently mm-hmm. shut down because of a New York Times investigational report that found out that the study was being funded by beer and alcohol companies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. And thus was it was being designed in such a way as to almost guarantee positive results from alcohol intake. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that's you can skew the data and you can you can manipulate your data to to have it have it kind of say or look how you want it to look. Um, you know, so if if the if there is a conflict of interest, you know, you can kind of through the process select what you're going to conclude so you're not gonna you're not gonna put out the information that goes against what is going to help your bottom line Um, and then people also are only going to publish the eye-catching findings and um, there's a lot of biases so I mean conflict of interest is huge but even with all of the nutritional studies or observational studies which of which I think there's like 15 to 20,000 nutrition studies published a year. And these are most 
most often, if not always observational studies. And um, it's funny when you, when you look at a study on how people report for these nutritional studies um, that are out there, um, people are going to, and, and it's shown time and time again, they underestimate bad habits and overestimate good habits, you know, and if you're just doing a, you know, look back because, you know, this particular supplement is supposed to help you live longer or prevent diabetes, well, people are going to report, you know, that their, their diet included more good things and less bad things, just because not, not because they're doing it on purpose. It's just misreporting because that's what Human recall nature. bias does. Yeah. Um, and, but all of that, these nutritional studies are based on what these people report and it's just not great data. And I think the NIH is now trying to actually standardize how these nutritional studies are done because right now there's like no guidelines. There's guidelines for how we do drug studies and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, but nutritional studies are, are definitely not standardized and hopefully will be one day. And, and to your, your earlier point, you know, what gets publicized is that, is that initial finding, what doesn't gets so much publicity is the finding several years later that that initial exactly uh, that was actually was, not was wrong maybe not true like yeah I mean there's so many examples eggs are bad for you eggs are good for you coffee's bad for you coffee's good for you cholesterol's bad for you cholesterol's good I red mean, wine yes yeah red wine is, I, good. is gonna let you live 10 years longer well not so much yeah exactly vitamin d we i mean vitamin d was supposed to do everything you know it was good for so many different things and there was a study in the past year that came out that said all of that information you know isn't really panning out so it's it's hard to hard to keep up i had to work on it okay well uh, our our goal is is to at least help people kind of uh, work through work through all that so um you know i think to sum it up Maybe in, in, you know, certainly weigh in. Um, obviously, all medical studies are not created equal. You know, look for that double-blind, randomized control um, kind of uh, uh, gold standard when you can. Don't believe everything you read, certainly. Yeah, if it and, sounds and, too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. <laughs> ex- yep, exactly. It's a, the wilder the claim, the more evidence kind of is, yeah. is, is required. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of, I don't know what the, uh, what, what the equivalent of caveat emptor would be in this case, if I, if I knew my Latin better. And yeah. I actually, I actually did, I took Latin for probably three years in, in high school, I should know it. But at any rate, um, that, that would be our, uh, that would be our advice. So, yep. so, well, Great talking to you, uh, Nicole, and um, and uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you again. Yes, thank you very much. Okay, have a great day. Bye bye. Thanks again for listening. You can visit the doctorandad.com. That's spelled T H E D R A N D D A D dot com for show notes to any of our podcasts as well as other useful info on extending health span. Now the legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this information in show notes is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not should not disregard 
or delay taking medical advice or treatment for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professional for any such conditions. We also want you to know that we take no funding from any product or service that may be mentioned on the Doctor and Dad podcast.